Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for being here for another episode. This month, we're going to be talking with Paula T. Weiss in her debut novel, Antifan Girlfriend. You're not going to believe it, and you're going to want more from this debut novelist. In fact, Paula, I'm going to go ahead and get the chant started. Sequel! 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 I can hear it picking up steam all across the country, so you better get writing, Paula T. Weiss. And then we'll step into our segment called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Production, and we'll welcome back Jay Misha Dunn to the program, and we'll hear about his I Can Laugh About It Now story. That's it. Let's get going. And welcome to another episode of Let's Talk with Scott Ellis. Today, we're talking with Dr. Paula Weiss. She is a self-described, overeducated, 26-year government employee with a Ph.D., an M.A., a B.A., kind of an A.B.C. Talking about one, two, three. She's got them all. The Antifan Girlfriend, the book that we're going to talk about today, is her first novel, and she wrote it because it's easier to get fiction cleared by her agency's censors than nonfiction. Paula was born in New York, but has lived most of her life in Minnesota and now in Northern Virginia with her husband, a 17-year-old daughter, and a goofy gray tortoiseshell cat. Aside from writing her sequel, which I can't wait for, she spends her spare time listening to her daughter complaining about college applications. And she's also a recovering figure skating mom. Dr. Paula Weiss, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Oh, hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I do have to correct one thing. I am not yet a recovering figure skating mom because the child is still figure skating and, in fact, has had some big successes recently. So I'm not allowed to recover quite yet. Excellent. Next year, perhaps. Once, once a figure skating mom, always a figure skating mom, right? So true. <laughs> That's it. Um, what, what kinds of schools is your daughter looking at? She's looking, I believe, at every third educational institution in the United States. <laughs> but they have to be places generally with ice rinks. So mostly in the northern part of the country. And they have to, uh, you know what, Scott, I'm not even sure what they all have in common. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're pretty good schools. Uh, we have excellent state schools here in Virginia, like UVA and Tech. So like most of her colleagues at high, in high school, uh, they're all applying to these two. We'd be very happy if she went to Tech or UVA. Yeah, yeah. Those are definitely good schools. So it sounds like she'll be happy wherever she uh, settles and... But it is a process. My philosophy is that if you apply somewhere you're willing to go, you will not be disappointed in the outcome. It's when you start applying randomly that you could end up somewhere that isn't really a good fit for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. So uh, college applicants out there that are listening, take that as really good advice. Oh, it it, uh, it is true. I had two daughters that went through it and um, 
it's it's a process, so I know what you're going through. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this book, The Antifan Girlfriend. I I don't even know where to start and how to summarize or describe this book. So uh, I'm going to let you do it because you certainly know it best. How would I describe this book? It crosses genres, which is part of the reason it's hard to describe. On some level, it is a spy thriller. On another level, it's a Cinderella romance. But most importantly, and this is what motivated me to write it, it's a warning. It opens 30 years after a civil war has sundered the United States into several smaller countries. There's the United States, the red flyover United States that still keeps the name. There's the Texas Republic, which was a stop to my relatives in Texas. But it certainly makes sense there'd be a Texas Republic. And there's the Diversity Justice Republic, which is the woke inheritor of the West and East Coast of the former United States. The novel takes place in the Diversity Justice Republic. My heroine, Malia, is in a library called the False Knowledge Depository. This is where the remaining paper books in the country are kept. Elites are allowed to continue to own some of them if they've been vetted. But for the vast majority of people, all permitted reading and viewing is now on something called the Great Virtual Network. If that sounds vaguely Chinese, it is not an accident because the DJR is a protectorate of the People's Republic of China. And that's because living under socialism, it is a smaller, it's a poorer country than the United States was before. In fact, none of these countries are as prosperous or as strong as they were before the breakup. This is not a, this book should not be interpreted as a, um, a pay-in to civil war because such a thing would be awful and disgusting and heartrending. But after a civil war, when you break up a rich, powerful country into three smaller ones, plus the Hawaiian kingdom that emerges again, and several states that go off and join Canada, you're in a situation where nobody is really better off than they were before. So in the DGR, everyone's poor. China needs to be the protectorate. It's building the bridges because you don't really learn science in a diversity justice republic because science and math separate elites from others who don't learn necessarily that well or who don't want to learn how to build a bridge or do the hard math. And so you can't even build your own bridges. And most of the food is grown in economic zone concentration camps along the border with the United States. And those concentration camps play a role in the novel later on when Malia finds out that experiments are being done truth serum experiments are being conducted on the prisoners. Now that's getting ahead of myself here. And I see what you mean, Scott, about this being a hard novel to describe. <laughs> right. Basically, Malia, okay, the whole country exists on social credit systems. And this is nothing unusual. We've talked about it. You can read about China's social credit system in our press. And there have been intimations that, why we could do something like this here. Take the fact that people have credit scores that are married to huge databases about their preferences, commercial and otherwise, 
And you have the basis for determining who is going to have a high credit score and who is going to have a low credit score. And those who have a high credit score under socialism, because socialism always works this way, are going to have greater access to scarce goods and services than those of the low social credit score. So my heroine, Malia, the last librarian left in the false knowledge depository because people aren't really interested in subversive books anymore, has a fairly low credit score. And she's pretty hungry because she gets this grocery bag every week from the authorities. And there isn't a whole lot in there that she really wants to eat. So she's always hungry. And she has lost her daughter. Her daughter was taken from her 10 years earlier for an ideological offense that, as you see in the book, really is rather frightening and wouldn't have amounted to much. So Malia is sad and she's hungry. An illegal reader comes to use the depository. A squad of the secret police known as the Antifa Defense Forces raid the building, drag off the unfortunate professor who has decided to read books that he is not entitled to read. And Molly is about to lose her job, at the very least, possibly go to prison herself, except the squad leader takes a shine to her. And that's David, who is my hero. And one thing that will become apparent about David is he has his own reasons for not being a huge fan of the government either. He does his job. He likes doing his job, even when it involves oppressing people. But it shows you that you can be a professional and yet be somewhat obtuse about the moral nature of what you do. That's a broader theme. So David and Malia start a romance. Everything's going really well. And David promises Malia that he is going to find her daughter and bring her back to Malia. Because David, because he's an Antifa commander, has resources that will enable him to at least locate the daughter. The daughter is located. And not to give anything away here, but this puts in motion a series of events that alerts Malia and David to the experiments going on under the auspices of the economic tower at these concentration camps along the border. The villain who is running them takes a liking to Molly. I won't explain how that connection is made. You can find out in the book. And the Antifans say, let's, let's put Molly on his trail and she can find out what's going on and she will be our wedge into bringing down the economic tower and the conspirators who are killing low social crediteers in search of this experiment. And all this happens while David and Malia are planning to recover her daughter and then somehow escape into the United States. This, there's a reason why this yeah. is a fairly long novel. Right, right. Um... And for listeners to this program who think, oh, great, okay, I've just heard it all. Um, no, you haven't. <laughs> it is it is such an intricate and, and in-depth novel. And I really want to talk about uh, the, the process of how it came to be because mm -hmm. it, it just boggles my mind. Uh, when you and I first met through the audition process mm -hmm. to do this in audio. Uh, you told me that you wrote this relatively quickly, and isn't that correct? Yes, I started in February of 2019. And no, no, hold on a second. No, it was February 2020. How could I forget that? 
And <laughs> I was done with the first draft by July. But that said, it takes, I think, just as long to edit a work as it does to draft it in the first place. So it finally came out in December of 2020. I remember writing the mm. prologue in February 2020. And then after COVID struck, I was on partial lockdown at home. And the time I had enabled me to write the draft as quickly as I did. Otherwise, I don't think it yeah. could have happened. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, you know, you're, this is your first novel. Yes. And you didn't take on an easy topic. You didn't take on a, you know, kind of one thread novel with maybe one subplot, maybe two subplots. Uh, you have so many characters and you do a fantastic job of making the characters so dynamic and so um, differentiated that it's it's very easy to keep track of who's who, who's saying what, what side they're on, uh, what their internal motivations might be. Uh, it it uh, I'm 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 nearly speechless, and that's that's tough for me to <laughs> to say enough about how impressed I am that this is a debut a debut novel. It's just an amazing piece of work. Well, well, thank you. One thing I have done recently in the most recent edition of the book, I added a cast of characters. The one criticism I received from people who otherwise love the book was that, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep all the characters straight. And I understand that because if I name somebody, there's a chance that they might become a major character. And then there's a chance that you may never hear of them again. So mentally, if you're trying to hold on to that character in your mind, it may not even be necessary. They serve a purpose and they've moved off the stage, but you won't know that unless you're the author. One of the right. strange things that happened was that there are characters who I did not plot out as characters or major characters. Uh, Dominic, for example, the young African-American officer who joins David's group and who falls in love with Chesa, who's on David's squad, I had him as a throwaway character. David meets with him for lunch. It was just meant to show David's um, willingness to mentor young people in the ADF. And yet Dominic seemed to stick. So this whole subplot with his romance with Chesa continues when she's being sexually harassed by David's deputy. And the ADF is not a feminist place, despite all the woke pretension, so she can't do anything about it. And even, even Adam Ross, the main villain, the one who's running the, the truth serum experiments at the concentration camps, the one who Malia is dispatched to bring down, he wasn't in the original version. I mean, as I wrote, he came in, but he was supposed to be a secondary character, and he quickly filled the stage, if you know what I mean. So even though I knew where I wanted to end up with the novel, as we went along, uh, details and even plot lines tended to morph. It was very strange how this happened. I did not plan this all out. I had outlines and then characters just demanded to take center stage or not. 
And their personalities often dictated how the plot went because you can't have a character who's wicked suddenly do a good turn unless you explain it. There's something about the nature of your characters that's going to dictate what is possible in the plot. You can still end up where you wanted to, but not necessarily anywhere you want to. Yeah. It's almost a case of, did you write the book or did the book, you know, write for you? You know, I mean, and I don't mean that as a way to, uh, you know, diminish what you've done. I know that you wrote it. But uh, I remember back from my theater days, there's a an old play called Seven Characters in Search of a Playwright. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of along that line where they already exist and they're going to control someone to write their story. I, I find it very interesting to hear how, like you were talking about, you know, with that minor character in your mind, uh, how he just kind of developed a, a life of his own and and took over. And if I can talk to uh, potential narrators for a moment, this is an excellent example of whenever you're going to be narrating a new project, you read it front to back every single word. You keep a notebook at your side and you note every single character that shows up, what chapter they show up, who they are in conversations with, uh, and you you note things that you learn as those these authors give us these wonderful nuggets of who they are. Uh, that's how you develop the that that character voice and that mm-hmm. character attitude. So there's my little teaching moment. <laughs> Once a teacher, always a teacher, right, Paula? That's right. <laughs> you've thought about so much. You've created new countries. You have new religions in here, complete with prayers and hymns and holidays. <laughs> um, it, how did talk about the process of, you know, you touched a little bit about your character um, profiles, you know, but how did you, gosh, uh, the religion, for example, did it kind of come out in pieces or did you sit down one day and say, okay, I'm going to design this new religion. Here's going to be the hierarchy. Here are the prayers and the hymns and the, and the beliefs. How did, how do you do kinds of thing? How do you do those kinds of things as an author? What you're describing, Scott, is called world building. And authors can be more or less exacting in how they do it. I can't claim that I spent a lot of time plotting this out. A lot of what I did in terms of world building was taking the reality that, frankly, I saw some people trying to impose on this country and saying, what is the logical extreme of this? So when you talk about climate change and loving the earth and having to save the earth, you anthropomorphize the earth. And it's a short step to creating an entire religion that's based on worshiping Mother Earth, because we all have a God, right? I mean, the God is not necessarily God, but if there's, it's a rare human being that doesn't worship something. And so it's not a huge step from worshiping the God that we, most of us were raised with, or at least we're familiar with, and to say, no, Mother Earth is really deserving of your worship. And here are the policies that follow from that. Because if you worship Mother Earth, then it 
makes sense that someday you may be dispatched to the euthanasia palace, pardon me, the euthanasia palace, because you're a burden on the resources of the earth. And if you think Mother Earth is truly God, then you really don't want to spend a lot of money or consume a lot of resources. You are told if you're a low crediteer that if anything, you are being godly by consuming less. Never mind that those high social credit elites around you are consuming a lot more. And what I found was that I didn't have to lay out the whole religion to have it relevant to the plot at various times. And when it became relevant to the plot, that's when I spelled things out more. So when Malia finally goes to the National Diversity Cathedral, which Washingtonians will recognize as the National Cathedral, the service is not that dissimilar to what you might experience now, but the gloss is much more earth worshiping. And various left-wing celebrities and politicians and icons are now saints because the most powerful thing that a religion can do is designate saints. And this is the way you can learn what the society is about by whom it designates as saints. So I, I don't know if I have a really pat answer for what you're asking. I didn't lay out a lot of this in great detail, but as the novel progressed, then I drew from the logic of what the society represented. Because the worst thing I think you can do as an author is to suddenly have a whole chapter saying, and this is the Mother Earth diversity religion, and here are the four things they believe. You lose your readers. That's not the way to do it. Sure. But by the end of the novel, I'm sure most people knew exactly what Mother Earth diversity was all about. Right. Yeah, because you, you gave it to us as we needed it to be able to move into the next scene, and it was all relevant at the time. You didn't have to rely on us remembering things, you know. So, yeah, it was—that's no, that's a great answer. It's just um, nice to know that process of how you did it. So why don't we take a minute and listen to a scene from the audio version, Um which uh, I narrated for you, and it's available on audible.com, amazon.com, and Apple Books. It runs uh, 30 hours and 12 minutes, so it's a, uh, a great book to really sink your ears into and, and go away with. So uh, in this scene that we're going to hear, uh, listeners are going to hear a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Um, can you set this scene for us before we listen? Malia is presiding over the False Knowledge Depository. It's a normal day in the office. She has a very rare treat, an actual seated roll that she's planning to eat later in the day. She doesn't often have such a treat available to her. And she's counting on being left alone. And then this professor from Hillary Clinton University, who has what seem to be impeccable credentials, shows up and expects to be allowed into the reading room, claims he has a deadline he has to meet. So the normal procedures that Molly is supposed to follow to vet readers into the false knowledge depository have been violated. But this is what we call social engineering. The professor actually is a professor with 138 social credits. She checks that because all the social crediteers have armbands, so they're easy to validate as saying who they, as who they say they are. 
and everything seems fine. It's just the paperwork for some reason hasn't arrived. He claims he sent it via the mail. No one does that anymore. It should have all been submitted electronically. It's not there. So she's a bit flustered. And under those circumstances, she lets Professor John McMillan into the library where he reads like a man who is encountering his first meal after starvation. All right, let's give this a listen. He was 40-ish, balding, and blinking at Malia behind wire-framed glasses. Malia panicked because she had no record of his application in her electronic files, nor had she gotten the usual alert on Friday about an upcoming visit. My name is John McMillan, 134, he said. I'm an associate professor of diversity history at Hillary Clinton University. I think my department may have sent the application by regular mail last week. That she would have remembered, but she didn't. She didn't want to call her boss at the Knowledge Tower, who would likely be irritated with her for not handling the situation and forcing her to make a decision bearing on knowledge security. Amalia Janess, Social Credit Score 96, the surviving librarian at the National False Knowledge Depository in Anacosta, formerly Washington, D.C., saw a few visitors these days, all of whose credentials were in order and whose visits required little initiative on her part. Suddenly, she had an idea. She went out into the foyer and asked the surly guard with the man bun. I don't have it, he said. She went behind his desk and found an express pouch that did, in fact, have the professor's paperwork. Oh, well, I forgot about that. The guard shrugged. She returned to the office. Professor McMillan, she said, I'm happy to report that your paperwork is indeed here, but... We haven't had time to process it. Would you be able to return tomorrow for your research? He looked hangdog. My flight leaves on Wednesday morning. I was counting on a full day and a half here. I need to confirm some citations for an article that has been accepted for publication in diversity scholarship. Malia thought, irritated. Well, why didn't you apply electronically, then? instead of wasting time through the mail. But she took pity on the few researchers interested in the books she safeguarded. And why would anyone bother to come here nowadays without a valid reason, especially a professor at a distinguished university? She also knew that Diversity Scholarship was the premier journal in the field, and, in fact, the depository maintained its own subscription. She asked him to wave his arm over the security counter. He was indeed who he said he was, although his social credit score was actually 138, not 134. Imagine not knowing that by heart. I can give you a waiver for today, but I need to check with the Knowledge Tower for your visit tomorrow, she said. She looked at the paperwork. You realize that the U.S. Constitution is available openly on the Great Virtual Network? She asked, puzzled. I just want to see the original version, pre-diversity republic, he said anxiously. There have been some edits for clarity since the republic began, 
and I am doing a sophisticated textual analysis that relies on complete faithfulness and accuracy with the original version, even though I realize it is dangerous to read. This sounded safe enough to Malia. How about if I let you see the other books this afternoon? I assume the permissions will be available overnight. He nodded. She had him sign some electronic checkout slips, and she ordered the Federalist papers from the request chute. She was shocked to see that he was requesting democracy in America, which was already sitting on her own desk, with a dangerous bookmark inserted. What quote are you using from democracy in America? She asked curiously. He did not bristle at the question, perhaps regarding it as a part of the required interrogation. It's the one where Tocqueville claims that tyranny in the U.S. would develop not from harsh decrees, but from a soft and mild, almost benign ruler who sought to help, not harm the people. I'm making an argument that the founders pursued a harsh individualism that led to a stigmatizing from the beginning of government that could have helped humanity thrive. That sounded safe, too. Malia handed him the volume she had been reading. So there it is, Paula. A lot of those elements that we were talking about kind of evidencing themselves right there in that sample. This episode of Let's Talk with Scott Ellis is brought to you by scottellisreads.com. Let's take a moment and learn more. The audiobook industry is growing by leaps and bounds. Is your book an audio? The team of Scott Ellis Reads can help make that happen. Your audience is busy, but your story is something they need to experience. Meet them where they are. Get your book into audio so they can listen while they move through their busy lives. Visit scottellisreads.com and listen to a variety of narrators from which you can choose. I'm Dom Petretta. You will hear me featured on the page along with some of my very talented and capable colleagues. You can also email scott at scottellisreads.com to talk about how he can help you narrate your own work. Nobody knows it like you do. We look forward to helping you expand your sales market and putting your story into the ears of your fans. Let's continue on with today's episode, now that you know more about scottellisreads.com. Who uh, tell me about the 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 fans of this book? Who are they? What are they liking about the book? Talk about that. The people who are most enthusiastic about this novel tend to be women who are politically conservative or socially conservative, and they tend to be pretty well educated too, because there's a lot of themes in the book that are politically charged. I could have written a much shorter book if it was simply a Cinderella romance about my librarian and her Antifan commander. And I'm not saying that would have been a bad thing, but it would have been a very different book. Some of the readers who really like it also are men, but they find those themes resonate with them. Now, that isn't, it isn't always the case they're conservatives because I had a very old, long-time friend of mine who hadn't hadn't been in touch with for 20 years, who I know is a socialist, 
And she reached out to me and she said, I read your book and I absolutely loved it. So I think you can read it as a romance and a spy thriller because a lot of the book is about how the Antifans managed to overcome opposition from the economic tower and from other villains in the book and win the day. It does help in reading this book if you agree with the idea that liberty is good and that the individual is more important than the collective and individual justice is more important than social justice. And that if you want to get married, you should be able to get married to the person you love. This is a problem for David and Malia because of their different social credit statuses. And it's the main reason why they end up escaping. We're trying to escape over the border to the United States. So the people who like this book most seem to be those who find the political themes compelling. But you can read it as a spy thriller, although I would say that the characters don't really exercise the kind of spy tradecraft I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there is, it does seem like there's a little bit of something for everybody in in this type of book because it, it does, as we've talked about, it has so many elements um, to it. So you uh, you've been working for the government for 26 years and then decided to turn into an author. How did that come about and what changes have you experienced with this process? I never really decided to become an author. I decided <laughs> to write the book, which is a very different thing. I still have my day job and I am working probably about 50 hours a week at this day job. I'm, I'm mostly an editor these days. And the great thing about the job is I feel like I do it well. It's not a challenge at this point. It's interesting, but I'm not occupying my brain having to learn a whole new set of tradecraft rules. It's a steadily humming machine. So I had the mental wherewithal, I think, to take on a new project. And I just kept having this image in my mind of a relatively young woman sitting in a dark office under a skylight, which becomes the false knowledge depository. I wasn't sure where I would go with it. And frankly, if it were not for COVID, it probably wouldn't have gone any farther. Huh. But then COVID struck, I was sent home on alternate weeks and Thank you, taxpayers. I took the opportunity to start writing. Now, I have to say part of the reason why I gained a lot of steam is because of the reaction to COVID and the government mandates and the delegitimization of views that were not in keeping with what the government wanted you to believe. Because as we know now, looking back two years later, we didn't know a lot. There was a lot of stumbling it's not that you want to blame anyone, but frankly, there were authoritarian trends to anyone who loved liberty that were very disconcerting. And we haven't put those aside yet. If you can't go into a restaurant in New York without showing your papers, we have not put the authoritarianism beside, um, sorry, behind us. And everything that happened in the spring of 2020 fueled my energy. 
That's why I kept writing as hard and as fast as I did. But I will tell you, Scott, a lot of the things I wrote about at the time, I said, you know, this really is too far out. This is not believable. This is not going to happen. And I hate to say it, but a lot of it did come true. I considered the science fiction when I wrote the first draft. I do not consider it science fiction now. It may be speculative fiction. It may be a spy thriller or the Cinderella romance, but it is not science fiction by any stretch of the imagination. And my friends kept saying to me as the news headlines rolled down, can you just stop writing? Because everything you're saying <laughs> is coming true. Even something like in the book, there's this chapter where David and Malia go to Stanton, Virginia. There's a lot of Virginia in the book. I love our state. I love our Commonwealth. And I made sure it was a character as well in here. They go to Stanton, which is this lovely artsy town in Western Virginia. And there's a theater called the American Shakespeare Theater, very well regarded. My husband and I, pre-COVID, went there quite a bit. And in the book, I make it this avatar of diverse uh, diverse drama in which all the plays of Shakespeare are being refreshed for a diverse audience. And you know what happened this spring? The American Shakespeare Theater, you can look it up in the Washington Post, they decided to revamp their entire repertoire under the guidance of diversity and inclusion experts. How can you make this up? I mean, I thought I was making it up, but reality chased me down. And there are other examples in the book where I said, you know, I almost didn't include this because I didn't think anyone would believe it. Wow. Yeah. And if you also look at the dangers posed by various COVID remediations, you can see how it could lead eventually to people with a chip being implanted in the back of their heads like the social crediteers all have because this is an outgrowth of the technology we started to use to identify people who had COVID fevers. There was discussion about using these apps in order to track down spots where people who would have COVID but not be reporting it to the authorities might be located. Now, it hasn't gone any farther than that, and I don't think that technology has taken off other than maybe in China, but it's there. And it could be put into place pretty easily if the government did want to determine who was where. And forget the government. Maybe it would just be a big tech company. I'm not sure what keeps a lot of these companies from being able to identify where you are. I mean, we carry our phones around all the time. We have this addiction to being connected. If we don't bring our phone to work with us, we're nervous all day. I mean, I have to leave mine in the car, but the point is, if you forget it at home, you want to go home and get it. You know, when you make it so easy for authorities of any kind to track you, you will be tracked if it's in their interest. So these are things that all flow from the reality around us. And it's not really science fiction because it's quite doable. Well, I hope you're taking your own lessons and being very careful with your sequel. (laughs) Well, the sequel is almost done. I'm at chapter 60. It's got to be shorter than the Antifa Girlfriend. The Antifa Girlfriend went to 78 chapters. I know anyone who's listening to this is probably saying, oh, my God, I'm not going to read that. 78 chapters. 
This will be much shorter. I will edit it down or it will be shorter. Let's put it that way. And tonight, in fact, I'm writing the climatic scene, which involves a lot of mayhem and hopefully the good side winning. But it's been a very energizing day getting to this point in the manuscript. Uh, it's basically the DJR, the Diversity Justice Republic, taking a look at the characters who made it across the border into the United States. I'm not telling you which ones they are and saying, you may not be interested in the DJR anymore, but the DJR is still interested in you. Hmm. I kind of wondered if that's where it was going. <laughs> so. Yes, but the other thing about the sequel is that it's called The Deplorable Underground. And the reason, of course, is because this version is very much about the subjugated poorest and the ways they have of getting around the restrictions that the social creditors have put on them. They're not citizens of the DGR, they can't vote. It doesn't really matter because no one really votes. You get to participate in an affirmation exercise every four years if you're a social creditor, but the poorest are really demonized and dehumanized and looked down upon. And when I look at the last few years in this country and I see the divisions between people who think they have nothing in common with the other half of the country and who despise them, what you'll see in the sequel is not a surprise at all. It's a logical outcome of the way we have begun to look huh. at each other. Wow. Well, I, for one, am going to look forward to the sequel, and I'm sure lots of your readers and listeners will do the same. So uh, as an audiobook narrator, when I tell people that's what I do, um, they they think that's great. They, they'd love to do it. They want to know how to do it. Uh, I'm guessing when you tell people that you've written a book, you might get much that same response. Oh, I'd love to write a book. I'd love to know how to do that. What advice would you have for someone who is uh, going to be a new self-published author from the writing standpoint, but also, if you would, from the standpoint of bringing that finished product into an audio version? The main advice I have, and this comes from dealing with a lot of self-published authors and would-be authors on many social media sites, is don't stint on the editing, don't stint on the cover art. You owe it to yourself if your work is going to be of high quality and is going to interest readers. You cannot produce a work that's littered with grammatical and other errors, and you can't have cover art that looks like you did it yourself. Spend the money. It actually isn't even that much money in the end. Take another job for a month to pay for it. But that's the main advice I would give. There are people who are virtually illiterate who are on these sites, and then they ask, I need a character. Um, I, what should this character do to be different? And I want to ask them, why are you writing at all? <laughs> why, why even bother? So that's my pet peeve about a lot of the people who do lurk on these sites. I'm never quite sure why they're writing if they don't want to do the job properly. In terms of an audiobook. I found the ACX process to be very, very clear and very easy to navigate. Most of the published or self-published authors I deal with still are very vague about how I'm supposed to do an audiobook. They're not sure how you get from here to there. And it's funny because so many people listen to audiobooks now. They rival 
maybe they even exceed print books in terms of their audience. And yet the process by which an audiobook is produced, it certainly was very strange to me. I could not have told you how this would work. So ACX leads you along in a very clear way. And I was able to, to identify a page or two of dialogue, put it on the ACX site and ask for auditions. You have to be careful when you pick your scripts. I picked scripts that were from various parts of the book with different characters. As you know, Scott, a lot of my characters are very diverse, different ethnic backgrounds. I had to have somebody who could read Jorge, the Bolivian night concierge who works with Malia. I had black characters, but I didn't want anything. I didn't want their accents to be uh, stereotypical either. And you just had to be very careful in how people read it. So that was my test. I got six or no, I think it was seven uh, people who auditioned, including Scott Ellis Reads. And it was interesting to see the diversity of those who responded. One person had such a strong New York accent, I could not imagine him reading this book. Uh, another person was actually a classically trained British actor who was delicious to listen to, but this is such an American book. And he pronounced Jorge the Bolivian as if you were Scottish, which I thought, well, that's actually somewhat charming, but it's not going to work. <laughs> but it's not right. Yeah. <laughs> and I also thought that a lot, a good number of the individuals would not necessarily have the background to undertake a book of this length, or some of them seemed a little high maintenance. And I didn't necessarily want to deal one-on-one -on -one with these people throughout the process that would be required to produce a book of this length and complexity. So what I liked about Scott Ellis Reads is that I said, okay, this is a company. They've done this before, many times before. I don't have to trust that they know what they're doing. Your website was there. It was very clear that you produce high quality audiobooks. And I thought you've done this often enough that whatever comes up, you'll have a system to deal with it. And you have a reputation to protect as well. And that gave me the confidence I needed to go ahead and sign the contract with you. Yeah. That's great. It's um I I you described that process. Uh, really well because it is it is daunting for authors. You know they think they th they write they think books. They don't necessarily think audio books. And you know that that process of you know how do I reach out to narrators? Where do I reach out to narrators? And you know that relationship is is key. You know so when when authors are putting a book and on out for audition and they're receiving auditions, feel free to ask more questions of your potential narrators. Uh, you know, we get, often we'll get callbacks, you know, where they'll say, I really liked your reading. You're one of my top five. Please, could you try this scene for me? I'd like to hear some more characters or how you deal with this type of situation. Ask them questions in terms of how are they uh, going to help you advertise? 
how are they going to work with you to make sure that you're happy with the end product? You know, uh, Paula, one of the things that you and I worked, you know, pretty closely on is, you know, according to the contract, once you hear the first 15 minute sample, uh, you're supposed to let the narrator run with the book and you know imagine imagine the rest of it. Well, looking at this book specifically, the 15-minute sample left 29 hours and three minutes, or uh, and 53 seven minutes. Sorry, 29 hours and 57 minutes that you wouldn't have heard. Uh, and you know, you and I worked really closely on making sure that the voices were as close as I could get to what you were imagining, that I was developed the in, I was delivering the intensity of scenes the way that you uh, had hoped when you were writing them. Uh, you know, we had some some false starts, some little hitches in our giddy up, as you might say. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but but we got through it and I think uh, together we've we've put a really nice product out there for for listeners to enjoy. I have to admit, I was a bit shy initially about bringing to your attention things that made me uncomfortable. And I probably should have done it a bit earlier because it turned out the first narrator was not the best person for the book. But you don't know that when you begin. Neither of us did. What I really admire is how when you realized this was not working out and I was spending more time correcting mistakes than should have been the case, you stepped in and you said, I'll record it myself. I can't charge you for this. I thought that was such an incredible demonstration of professional integrity that on that basis alone, I would recommend you to anyone who is trying to have an audiobook process where they can count on their narrator and a company to do the right thing. Because I think that's one reason why people hesitate to hire editors or cover artists, let alone audiobook narrators, because you don't know what recourse you have if something goes wrong. And in this case, I can reassure anyone who's listening to this that you will be treated right. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to make this sound like an ad. Scott did not ask me to say any of this. (laughs) But I think that's really important to know, even when it comes to artistic differences. You and I had some discussions about Malia towards the end. At that point, she's in, I don't want to give it away, but she's in mortal peril. Right. But yeah. at the same time, she's she's found her voice. She's confident. She's no longer the terrified librarian. She's become the seasoned espionage operative. And she's dealing with some of these senior people who she would have quaked in front of months earlier. And now she's much more confident. So she can't sound as if she's terrified. She said things to them that we would call back talk. And she wasn't frightened, or she wasn't even very emotional when she said it. She was just being flippant. And so that had to come across. Otherwise, I do think it's important to let your narrator be able to impose some of his artistic vision on the character too, because you may find there's different ways to read the scene. Your audience won't necessarily know as an audiobook audience how you intended it to sound when you envisioned it in your head, but in an audiobook, maybe it will come out better if said in a different kind of way. And to some extent, I think you have to give the narrator a fair shot to let him or her read the character as they think might be best. If it doesn't work, then you'll talk. 
but it's an artistic process that really became clear. It's not, you can't just read a book. It doesn't happen that way. There's so much that goes into it. <laughs> there really is. And it, it just, it's, it's reinforcement of that communication and that relationship uh, element to the, to the whole situation. Um, you know, so authors that are looking to put their books in, into audio, ask questions, ask, 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 get involved with your narrators, talk, communicate. I can't, I can't stress that enough. And I really appreciate the kind words that you had for, uh, how, how we got through, uh, uh, the, the false start. And, um, you know, hopefully we, we, made you happy in the end with the project and uh it's it's gonna sell 15 million copies <laughs> everybody really is that I, in the contract <laughs> i'll have to go back let's see i've got the contract right here <laughs> paula weiss it has been so much fun talking with you i've really enjoyed it the book is called the antif and girlfriend it's available on audible.com amazon.com and apple books it is 30 hours and 12 minutes of just pure escape joy and fun listening find it paula thank you for being here scott thank you so much i really appreciate the opportunity and now it's time for another episode of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Production. I'm talking today with J. Misha Dunn. He is the author of the Andrew Brush series, uh, starts with Brush with Death, and the second book is Frozen Brush, which yours truly narrated, and we are anxiously awaiting Brush Ablaze. Misha, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. So. You know, when we're narrating, when we're writing, we have things that happen that just make us say, what? Uh, and I believe you have a story about some of your fight scenes in your books. Yes. So I my books do feature uh, their fair share of martial arts uh, fight scenes. And that is because I currently hold two black belts. Uh, I have studied martial arts for over 10 years. Uh, and that dedication was uh, nine hours a week in the classroom, in the in the dojo. So uh, I have been in lots of fight scenes, lots of tournaments. I've been knocked out. I've broken bones. So I've been there, done that. Um, and one of the funny things that happened to me uh, was uh, not actually during production, but I have gotten uh, comments from uh, readers, uh, emails, and uh, I think even maybe some reviews out there where they told me that the, the fight scenes were ridiculous, unbelievable, couldn't happen, didn't happen, untrue. Clearly, I didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, I just have to kind of smile and nod because it's, I mean, not only do I have the experience, but I would always grab somebody and make them choreograph the fight scenes with me before I wrote them, as I wrote them, after I wrote them, just to triple check that everything was right. So, yeah, when people say that, I'm, just kind of chuckled and not worth replying, but I'm like, well, that's, that's interesting. I mean, okay. Thanks for your two cents. Right. A, a great response would just be a picture of you holding your two black belts saying, would you like to pick one? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> you know, you, you can't please everybody all of the time, right? 
Right, definitely. <laughs> Jamie Shadun, that's a great story of things that happen uh, in production. Uh, you can hear two of his audiobooks starring Andrew Brush on Audible and Amazon and Apple Books. And you can hear the first installment of The Ghost Killer, also in Audible. Check him out on Facebook, J. Misha Dunn. Check out some of the other books that he's written. Misha, thank you very much for your story. Thanks, Scott. I don't know who to thank first. You, my listeners, my guests, Paula T. Weiss and J. Misha Dunn, the wonderful people who put this podcast together. You guys are incredible people. In fact, you know what? I'm not going to decide. I'm going to thank you all at once. I truly mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.